Good afternoon. I am Jeff Smelser, and this is Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. And we're going to be continuing our study of the book of Acts today. Joe works in Elmira, New York. Good afternoon, Joe. Hello, Jeff. Good to be with you. And then we have Chase Byers, and he is in a new place. Uh, Chase is yes. in Fishers, Indiana, right? That's right. Yes. I just started working with the Fishers Church of Christ earlier this week, and it's been a lot of fun so far. All right. So um, that's where we'll be seeing you from on a regular, just from here indefinitely. Um, you all meet on Sundays, I assume. <laughs> we do. Well, why can I, can I assume guess. that? So Why today nice we're thing? talking about today we're talking about Seventh Day Adventists, and uh, we're, that'll be our topic. No, I'm kidding. Uh, yeah, we meet we meet on Sundays. Jeff. <laughs> okay, all right, very good. So if you are listening to this and you are in the Indianapolis area, particularly if you're on the north side, Fishers is out on the northeast side of Indianapolis. I'm sure that the folks meeting there in uh, Fishers, Indiana, would love to have you stop in. Chase would enjoy meeting you. Uh, Joe would love to have you stop in with the meet with the church in Elmire, New York. And uh, of course, if you're in Southeast Pennsylvania, we'd love to have you stop in and worship with us here at Exton um, on Sunday mornings. You can look us up at extonchurch.org. You guys want to give a plug for your websites before we get into Acts chapter seven, the end of the chapter? No? Okay. <laughs> we, we, we don't use our website very much, um, uh, uh, but anybody that wants to contact us through Facebook, that would be a, a great way of, of reaching out to us, or, or even just through Messenger. Um, uh, you can contact me through Facebook Messenger. Uh, that'd probably be the, the most efficient way of, of reaching out to us. All right. Very yeah, good. And we can be reached at our website, fishers Dash dash church of christ.com i put it in the comments of the facebook feed and i'll do it in zoom as well for anyone right, who wants to check out okay guys so we were we were in the book of acts and we got up to the point where uh stephen one of the seven who had been appointed to to see to it that the widows were not neglected who had been being neglected in the daily service the daily ministration stephen had been accused and he had uh responded to his accusers in we sometimes call it a sermon it's really I mean, I guess it's a sermon, but it's really an indictment, and maybe we'll get one of you two guys to just kind of sum up what Stephen says, and then uh, after that, we will see what happened uh, in response to Stephen's comments, Acts chapter 7. Would one of you guys like to sum up what Stephen had to say? I think one of the main yes. things... Oh, go ahead, Chase. No, 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 go ahead. Well, I, I said one of the main things that I appreciate from this text is how he's taken some very basic lessons from the Old Testament, and he, those are woven in to a theme. He talks about Abraham in verses 2 through 8, and then Joseph in 9 through 16, um, and then he picks up talking a lot about Moses in verse 20, um, uh, all the way down almost to the very end, to uh, 44 uh, or so. Um, and focuses on those three men. I and mean, a couple of things that I see about them is that they were faithful to God and they ended up having to be separated from their people um, uh, and either rejected by or separated from his people. And that seems to be the conclusion that, that Stephen is, is drawing um, uh, that uh, the uh, Abraham's kin folk, um, uh, he had to get out from his country there. Joseph um, uh, dealing with his brethren, but it, and then Abraham, uh, then Moses, 
and particularly with Joseph and Moses, they ended up being saviors of a, of a sort, the physical saviors. And uh, they are all then foreshadowing Christ and uh, the way that Moses had been treated and the prophets had been treated after Moses is the way that they've treated Christ and uh, also the the disciples in the, the first six chapters. And then, and then Stephen's hearers prove his point by then persecuting him, actually putting him to death. Right. So, so let's start there in verse 54. Yeah. Uh, Chase, why don't you read for us? Just read uh, 54 down through, um, down through the end of the chapter and get the first line of verse 1 in chapter 8. When they heard these things, they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he fell asleep. Saul agreed with putting him to death. Okay. Uh, so. Obviously, uh, Stephen is impressive here, um, but we also then meet Saul for the first time, and uh, this is the way of introducing the persecution. In fact, the, the verse 1 of chapter 8 goes on to say, there arose that day a great persecution against the church which, it, which was in Jerusalem. What observations would you guys want to make here on this section that Chase just read? I think one of the things that's interesting about the book of Acts that I had not appreciated until the last few years, I think, is we see a lot of foreshadowings of Christ in people like Abraham and Joseph and Moses. But then in the book of Acts, we see, um, if, if I can just use the term, post-shadowing. Um, I like uh, back shadow. There you go. That, that, uh, that's pretty good. Um, uh, where they are... Uh, doing the same things that Jesus did. They're, they're imitating Jesus. Here you have Stephen being killed and practically saying, Father, forgive them. Um, uh, you know, you, you can almost hear the words of, of Jesus coming out of, of Stephen. Somebody once it, said that Stephen was so full of God that when he was beaten, that that's what came out, that, that Christ came out of him. And isn't it amazing, Joe, that the one that's connected with this story, Saul, by the end of the book, he's going to be kind of taking that on as well as another back shadow of who Jesus is. The, the, it's yeah, cool yeah. how it's an, it's an infectious thing. As it goes. Yeah, yeah, certainly. So, so um, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, uh, but there are some people who um, – are hesitant to think about worshiping Jesus because they feel like we worship God. Peter, of course, when Cornelius bows down to him later on in Acts chapter 10, Peter says, uh, I'm a man uh, like you, uh, worship God. Um, and, and yet here um, you have Stephen uh, seeing Jesus and, uh, and, and where, what am I looking for? Uh, he says, Lord Jesus received my spirit. I guess, I guess what I'm thinking is there's some who have a problem 
directing a prayer or singing a song that is essentially a prayer directly to Jesus. Uh, and yet Stephen does so here. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, we, we see Jesus being worshiped, uh, what, like 11 times in the gospel accounts. Um, uh, and good. Yeah. I can cite a few of those real quick. Matthew 2, 11, Matthew 14, 33, and Matthew 28, really verses 9 through 17 are some of those places. And in all, all three of the cases in Mark 5, you have the demonic man, the woman with the hemorrhage for 12 years, and then Jairus, uh, all three of them come and, and proskuneo, probably mis mispronouncing that word, um, uh, came and, and, and fell down before Jesus. But especially Revelation 5, um uh, is is such a powerful i mean if heaven worships jesus then i would think that uh, that earth should as well um uh, so yeah i'm i'm always a little bit uh, confused by people's hesitancy to see jesus as worthy of honor and praise and adoration and and i i, I don't i don't want to make light of somebody who in good conscience feels that they have a problem uh singing a song that's directed to jesus but it does strike me as interesting uh, when we go through these different examples, we can talk about when people bowed down to Jesus in the Gospels and they'll say, well, that's that's why Jesus was on earth. And, and then we get to Acts chapter seven and well, that's uh, Stephen could actually see Jesus and they say, so that that doesn't apply to us. Uh, and then they'll, then you mention Revelation 5, and, the, and people say, well, that's people who were in heaven with Jesus. And, and after a while, it just seems like we're, we're kind of, whatever particular circumstances there are, we're going to decide that those are special circumstances, and it wouldn't matter what the circumstances were. It seems like the individual is almost going to say, whatever the circumstances are, those are not my circumstances. But it, it does bring to mind a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 1, um, mm -hmm. where Paul is on earth, and he's not actually seeing Jesus at the moment, and Jesus is in heaven, it's the very same circumstances we're in, and Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, I thank him that enabled me, even Jesus Christ our Lord for that he counted me faithful, appointing me to his service. I think Paul is saying, I give thanks to Jesus, which is essentially yeah. a prayer. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah I, I yes, think we'll have to I encourage people agree. to do that. Well, all right. Yeah. Let's go on uh, and see. Can I say, Chase? Sure. I just want to say one last thing here. In chapter 7, at the very end, it says, and after he said this, he fell asleep. Uh, it's just important to remember pretty consistently through the New Testament that Christians, when they die, or it's referenced that they die, it says that they fall asleep, and it's more in First Thessalonians four, uh, because of course we're going to wake up one day in the day of resurrection and go be joined with the Lord. So Christians, uh, their death, even in the face of persecution, is only for a moment because we'll all be raised. Although, don't we have that expression used to people who are not Christians? Also, I think uh, inform me uh, in Luke. Uh, let's see. Uh, is it Jairus's or is it the, uh, I'm not remembering the references, but I'm, I'm thinking I remember seeing that expression being used either of Jairus's daughter or. Well, there were certainly yeah, times, in, like, in, like I know in, in the gospel five, of Mark. 
in, in Mark 5, Jairus' daughter, uh, Jesus says she's not dead, she's sleeping. They, yeah, maybe that's what I'm thinking. But, but I would even think of that as, I mean, she's a 12-year-old child, um, uh, even in her death. I, I, to me, the same point would still be made. Uh, the idea of, instead of being thinking of it as death, but rather sleeping, to, to think of that as a sense of hope. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah. All right, so then we come back to chapter 8, and we get to the, the middle of verse 1. Uh, this is one of those places where my Bible puts the, the, the it has uh, the paragraph break in the middle of the verse. It takes the first words of verse 1, Saul was consenting unto his death, and puts it with chapter 7, which makes sense, and then starts the new paragraph in the middle of the verse. It says, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church which was in Jerusalem, and they were all scat <coughs> scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. <laughs> Up to this point, the church has just been in Jerusalem, and I, I think that's the implication here. It's not saying the church in Jerusalem as opposed to the church elsewhere. I think it's referring to the fact that the church was in Jerusalem. These people had come and they'd stayed, yeah. and, uh, and now because of this persecution, they're going to be scattered. But interestingly, the apostles are not. It's the rest of the brethren. Uh, then we have a couple of verses Devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. But Saul laid waste the church, entering into every house and dragging men and women, committed them to prison. Just if you can imagine a knock at your door and there's somebody there and he's going to take away members of your family or you because of your faith, because that you have confessed Jesus as the Christ and haul them off to prison. And that's what Saul was doing at this point. Just such a, a powerful image. Um, uh, I forget, how, how did your translation say in verse 3 he was uh, ravaging? It says laid waste the laid, church. Laid waste. And the, the New American Standard maybe is ravaging. New King James is making havoc. Uh, all of those is very powerful. You know, it's not just kind of... Uh, upset with these people or causing some trouble. Um, it is an extreme uh, language that's used there, devastation or ruin, even um, uh, the idea of that word, if I remember right. So then we come to verse four, oh, and as a consequence, go ahead, Chase. I just wanted to say that in verses one through three, I mean, we've been establishing just how many obstacles the early church has had to overcome. And I want you all to just think about the weight of all of this starting in Jerusalem, like you emphasized, Jeff. And then now you have to leave. Like, I think there would be a tremendous weight of wanting to depart from the faith uh, because now the apostles are staying in Jerusalem. We're getting scattered. And that would be a real temptation for a lot of people is just to give up at this point. And it's telling of their faith because what we're going to read in verse four, what they do. You know, I think this is such a powerful point that the church began and grew in the face of great opposition. You had the apostles being arrested previously a couple of times, but now you have a general persecution against the church, and the church is going to grow in the midst of that. Uh, and, and I often talk to people who aren't sure whether they believe the Bible is the Word of God or not, and and talk to people about the idea of the resurrection of Jesus, and they're not sure that Jesus was raised from the dead or not. And I make the point, we've stressed over and over when the gospel is preached, the key is that Jesus has been raised from the dead. 
And we've seen that already up to this point in the book of Acts, and we will continue to see that. And if if you've got a uh, if you're going to try to start a religion based on the claim that somebody who recently died is now alive and raised from the dead, and and you've got people motivated to put a stop to that, if it were not a true claim, it would be an easy thing to put a, to do to put a stop to that. You just produce the body, and and now there you go. So there is there are motivated people. That's evidenced by the persecution. Um, and yet the church continues to grow and they cannot put a stop to it because the resurrection really happened. All right, verse four. Uh, Joe, how about getting us started in verse four and go as far as you want. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did, for unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. There's great joy in that city. It's interesting. When Jesus talked to the apostles back in chapter 1 and said, wait here in Jerusalem, and then you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth. He had a plan, but it, it, you, you, you can imagine that the disciples did not think, oh, I know how he'll accomplish this. There'll be a great persecution against us, and, and we'll be spread out. From the disciples' perspective, it would be easy to think, oh, no, everything's going wrong. We're being persecuted. And yet, the Lord was using this persecution as the means of accomplishing what he said. You're going to start in Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and that's where Philip goes, uh, right here in this text you just read, Joe. And, you know, sometimes people will talk about the need to be better organized, that we need to have some sort of uh, hierarchy and, and you know, headquarters and, and structure to the churches and, you know, coordination and organization and so forth. And, and we have that mm -hmm. because we have a head in heaven who is controlling the events to fulfill his purposes. That is and, and we just really need to trust that organization plan instead of trying to think of plan B that, that we think might be better or to sort of follow a model off of some kind of a, of a business structure or even worse, a false religion. I love that point. That is, that is so important. And so often what has gone awry in religious movements is when man has gotten his own wisdom involved and decided he's going to come up with the plan for how we're going to evangelize the world, how we're going to organize something that God did not organize in human terms uh, in that way. And putting our trust in the fact that God is in charge, he has the plan. There was a previous time in Bible when God had wanted his people to be spread out and to scatter and to, to go forth. And they decided that they were going to meet together and build a headquarters and make a name for themselves. And uh, the Tower of Babel uh, is infamously known as that. Yep. Yep. Good. All right. Uh, so we find that this Philip, and, and this Philip is the same Philip that was mentioned back in chapter 6. He and Stephen were two of the seven who were appointed to see to it that the widows were provided for. And now Philip has gone to Samaria. He's doing signs, and as a result of that, people are believing. Uh, and I think that's, that's important. Verse 6 and 7, uh, the multitudes gave heed with one accord to the things that were spoken by Philip when they heard and saw the signs which he did. And then that goes on to be a description 
of those signs. And, and in our world today, everybody wants a miracle, but people don't realize the point of miracles, signs. In fact, the word often translated miracle in the King James Version means signs. The point of them was to confirm the message of the messenger as being from God. Uh, over in Hebrews chapter 2, it talks about confirming the word with signs and wonders and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, sure, Jesus was sometimes motivated by compassion for somebody, and he would do a miracle. And yet the function of the miracle, the sign, was to validate him as a messenger from God and his message as being from God. Um, and, and that's what you see here. Very effective and exactly what, what God had promised them. Okay, I think it, maybe just one quick point, and this is maybe so simple that it's easy to read through. Uh, they preached Christ. Philip preached Christ. You know, that's we don't want to convert people to just a better church or a a better uh, organization. You know, they the world we need Christ. And I'm impressed throughout the book of Acts. It is Christ that is preached. Yep. Mm -hmm. And and you know, uh, let's just put so those two thoughts together. If you're if you're a Jew and you go to Samaria, Samaria, where the Samaritans live, whom the Jews hate, there's 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 bad blood between those two groups. And you're gonna walk into town and you're gonna start telling people, hey, listen to me. There was a guy who got crucified in Jerusalem and and he got raised from the dead, and he's the Messiah. What are the chances people are going to believe you? Right. Uh, but but he, he did the signs, and he's preaching Jesus, but for people to have a reason to believe him, he does the signs. Yeah. And so now his, his preaching Jesus is, is something they can believe, and they do. I, I think it's helpful, and I think, I don't know if one of you pointed this out later in Acts chapter 21 in verse eight, it calls this same Philip an evangelist. And uh, we only see that word evangelist two other times, Ephesians 4, 11, and then second Timothy four, verse five. But this word evangelist is also kind of the same root for the word gospel, right, Jeff, where we get the word good news. Exactly. And so euangelion and euangelistes, the word euangelion would be the good news of the gospel and euangelistes would be the person who brings the good news. So I like to call those guys the good newsers and the good newsers isn't about themselves. The, the good newsers are telling the good news of Jesus. Like Interestingly, in this so, passage, we're going to have the good news of the kingdom being uh, mentioned. Let's start mm -hmm. in verse nine. Uh, there was a certain man, Simon by name, who before time in the city used sorcery and amazed the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest saying, this man is that power of God, which is called great. And they gave heed to him, because that a long time he had amazed them with his sorceries. But when they believed Philip, preaching good news or good tidings concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And Simon also himself, this sorcerer, he believed, and being baptized, he continued with Philip. And beholding signs and great miracles wrought, he was amazed. Comments, guys? Uh, just, just certain things that aren't stated in the text, but I think become evident. You know, Simon had been there for a while. He had been claiming to be somebody great. And yet, 
you had all these people with unclean spirits and uh, demon possessed and paralyzed and uh, infirmities um, that Simon had never healed. And so the miracles that Philip do uh, that, that he performs are just radically different than the the sorcery or magic that that Simon does. And then also an, another contrast between the two of them. Um, Simon is doing these things, and he's claiming to be somebody great. Philip does greater things and says Jesus is great. Um, uh, just such a stark contrast, and I think we can see that in some of the religious shows that go on today. Yep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, so they can see the difference, and they believe Philip, and they're baptized, and Simon himself is baptized. Um, and then verse 14, and let's go through 16. When the apostles that were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, let's pause there. How far away is Jerusalem from Samaria? About 35 miles? Something like that. Yeah. Sure. And so they hear down in Jerusalem that Samaria has received the word of God, and they sent unto them Peter and John. Who are Peter and John? Apostles. The apostles. Uh, was Philip an apostle? Nope. Uh, when they were come down, they prayed for them. So Peter and John come to Samaria and pray for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet it was fallen upon none of them, only they had been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Uh, and then laid they their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Okay. All right. So here we have Peter and John having to come 35 miles to pray for them and lay hands on these people and give them the Holy Spirit. And two questions. Didn't they already have the Holy Spirit? And, and if not, uh, in what sense not? And if not, why did the apostles have to come do that? Why couldn't Philip do that? So uh, start out, you're did they have it, the Holy Spirit? Did they have the Holy Spirit? Yes, yes. yes. They, well, they repented and were baptized in the same way they were in Acts 2. They received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then why did Peter and John have to come? Gifts of the Holy Spirit in order to be able to do these miracles and perform these same things that Philip is doing. And I think that's a contextual inference, but I think it is a correct inference. It doesn't say in the translation I have, it doesn't say gifts of the Holy Spirit. It says, give them the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was given, right? In a different way. But we do have this expression, the gifts of the Holy Spirit being used in, in various other passages in the New Testament. Uh, and what you're, what you're getting at, Chase, is the idea that, well, back in Acts chapter 2, when, when they were told to repent and be baptized, they were told to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which I take to be the Holy Spirit, uh, which means you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. We can talk about whatever that means. Whatever it means, they were going to do that. They were going to receive that. Here, you've got people who have believed and they've been baptized, but we have to have Two apostles come from Jerusalem for them to receive the Holy Spirit. I think it's a correct inference that this is a different working of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't just do one thing. There are a lot of people who have the idea that the Holy Spirit's kind of locked in. He, if you get the Holy Spirit, then it just means this. But we receive the Holy Spirit when we receive the instructions that come through the Holy Spirit, the Word of God. But the Holy Spirit can do other things. And here, the Holy Spirit was working through Philip to do miracles. I mentioned a passage a little bit ago in, a, in Hebrews chapter 2. I want to flip over there real quickly. Hebrews chapter 2, and it says in verse 6, God 
also bearing witness with them, those who heard the word originally from the Lord, God bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and by manifold powers and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. So apparently the Holy Spirit gives gifts that were a means of confirming the word. Um, God bearing witness, testifying that this message that's being preached is from God. Well, that's what we said Philip was doing when he was doing miracles and people were hearing his preaching. He had the Holy Spirit in such a way he could do miracles and confirm the word, what Hebrews chapter 2 says. So, you know, somebody may have the Holy Spirit. That doesn't necessarily mean he's going to be a miracle worker. Philip was. Uh, so I guess what I'm saying here is to be given the Holy Spirit can mean different things in different contexts. So I'd agree with you, Chase. These people received the Holy Spirit in as much as they had received the message being preached uh, by Philip, who was preaching the message that came through the Holy Spirit. But then we have to have Peter and John come. How come? Because they were apostles, and they had the ability to uh, uh, pass on uh, these gifts to the Holy Spirit. Pass on. That's the key. The implication in this passage is Philip did not have that ability. He could do the miracles. He could confirm that the message he was preaching was from God. He could not pass on that ability to somebody else. And so you've got Peter and John coming from Jerusalem. And, and you know, Simon the sorcerer gets this, doesn't he? Yeah, verse 18 is key. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands. So he, mm -hmm. he understood this. Oh, and, and then he said in verse 19, give me this power uh, also so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Yeah, he's not just wanting to receive a miracle. He's wanting to be able to hand out miracles, hand out the ability right. to do miracles, which yeah. thinking about his background, no, no, no doubt he was making pretty good money as a sorcerer. Wow, what could he make if he had the ability to give other people the ability to do miracles? Yeah. yeah so can, can I say one other thing about about this text please it's do. a super side I, I it's a super side thing but i think it's really cool so in luke chapter 9 there's a time that the disciples are in samaria and it's james and john who uh upon hearing that the samaritans won't welcome jesus they want to call down fire from heaven to consume the city uh <laughs> in in John chapter 4, whenever Jesus is conversing with the Samaritan woman, all of the apostles come back and question Jesus as to why he was even talking to the Samaritan woman in the first place. And kind of the whole section, it, it looks like the apostles, they don't want to have anything to do with Samaria. And Jesus is like, would you guys look at the fields? They're white for harvest. And I just think it's funny that it's the apostle John, who was once wanting to call down fire on this city is now going to call down the Holy Spirit uh, on the on the city. So uh, good point. I, I think it shows that I think it shows that it doesn't matter what previous thinking about a race or a group of people is uh, with the gospel, it's able to change that. So um, there's, a, there's an implication here for us today. In the first century, a lot of people had the ability to do miracles, to speak in tongues, to do various things like that by the Holy Spirit. Uh, but if those abilities were given by the apostles through the laying on of the apostles' hands, um, that would seem to have come to an end with the, the deaths of the apostles, which would, and I'm not saying that as soon as the apostles died, everybody who had a, a such a gift lost it, 
but it wasn't being transmitted anymore after the death of the apostles. Now, somebody could say, well, God has the power to, to do it otherwise, and sure, he does, but that's not what we see in the New Testament. What we see in the New Testament is actually Paul talking about, in 1 Corinthians 13, talking about the spiritual gifts and uh, talking about the time that they're going to cease and that they're going to cease when the perfect or the complete comes. And the partial that he, he's contrasting the complete with is partial revelation. And so it's it just seems like when you put Acts chapter 8 together with the rest of the New Testament, you have a picture of a period of time during which the apostles were laying hands on people, giving them these spiritual gifts, then there would come a time when that would no longer be needed, and that that would coincide or be similar to the time that the apostles died out. Does that make sense? Uh, I think you're spot on. Yeah. But but then then we might ask, well, if those things were needed when the apostles were on the earth, why aren't they needed after that? Because we have the word now. Uh, in fact, by the time that the apostles died and those upon whom they had laid hands had died, then the word was being circulated by that point. So let's put yeah. it this way. Suppose one of you went to Samaria today and you had an opportunity to preach the good news of the kingdom and the name of Jesus Christ. And somebody said, what makes you think you've got the truth? What would you turn to to show them that what you're saying is not something you just made up, it's from God? I, I, I would point to the, the scriptures and how you have, particularly from the Old Testament, all of these things that were stated hundreds of years earlier um, that are fulfilled. Uh, only God has the ability to, to do that. Where would, so you, the, where would you go to show that they'd been fulfilled? In other words, you go to the Old Testament and you show things that God says in the Old Testament. The Samaritans had the Old Testament scriptures. They didn't believe all of them, but they had them. And, and now you want to show, look, what you read here in the scriptures, in the Old Testament scriptures, has been fulfilled. Where would you go to show that? I, 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 would, I would want to discuss the, the, the empty tomb. The empty tomb. Where, where would you even? You're not helping me out here. Work with me. <laughs> I, I don't know, Jeff. Where would uh, Jeff? Where would you go? The New Testament scriptures. Okay. I thought you were. I thought you were asking how would I prove that the New Testament yeah. had actually been fulfilled. No, 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 I'm no, so no. I'm saying how would you prove that what you're saying right. is not just from you? It's from God. Yeah. And I would turn to the New Testament scriptures like you. I would show the correlation between the Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament scriptures. But my point is, I have something that Philip didn't have. Right. I've got the New Testament scriptures that show the consummation of God's plan that started in the Old Testament. Well, what they were saying orally, we have in written form. And, and, well, and Philip didn't have in written form. Right. So Philip could go and say... Uh, Jesus taught this, the Holy Spirit says that, so on and so on. But unless he can do a miracle, he has no means of telling them what I'm telling you is from God, because he doesn't have the New Testament scriptures. That's what I was trying to get at. Well, and Sorry. also just touching on something Joe said, Joe earlier was talking about that these New Testament letters were meant to be circulated, even in that day, while there were still miracles going on. Paul writes in Ephesians 3, that uh, the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have briefly written above. And by reading this, you were able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. 
This was not made known to people in other generations, as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Um, and so that's just a helpful passage to see that even, even in that century where there are miracles confirming the message, the written account was just as powerful even in that day, too. And, and but just to, to be clear here, what I was what I was trying to get at is this question: Why why would they need miracles then, and we don't now? We have something they didn't have. We have the completed revelation. We have the New Testament scriptures, right. Um, right. which confirm the word. Okay, well, all right. Well, maybe we're not sure where that horse is dead, but we beat it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Okay, so. Uh, Peter rebukes uh, Simon, doesn't he? Let's start in verse uh, 20 and see what Peter says to him. Let's go through 24. But Peter said to him, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. And, and Simon answered. Yeah, go ahead. And then Simon answered and said, "Pray to the Lord for me that none of these things which you have spoken may come upon me." Mm -hmm. Okay, a um, couple of things here. Um, I mean, what Peter says to Simon is is pretty serious. Uh, the mindset is gall of bitterness, bond of iniquity. Bond in, indicates you're you're bound. You're bond. You're in bondage to it. You're stuck with it, uh, which doesn't sound like he is in a spiritually safe condition. Uh, so here you have an example of somebody who believes and is baptized, and yet he is in danger of eternal condemnation. I, that's what I would take from that. You're, when he says your silver perish with you. Um, your bond of iniquity. So this is one of those passages I think is helpful if somebody is thinking that once you're saved, you can't be lost. Well, this seems to indicate otherwise. Peter was very concerned. And and sometimes the argument is is unfortunately made that well, well, maybe Simon wasn't really converted to begin with. And yet the text is pretty clear that he certainly was. In verse 13, then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip. Yep. Uh, and, and then uh, th there is this also to be observed. When he did, after he had been baptized in Christ, and then he slips back into his old mindset, and Peter rebukes, he doesn't have to be baptized again. That's often, you know, I don't know how many times, but it's quite often over the years, somebody's been concerned that, you know, I fell away. Do I have to be baptized again? Mm -hmm. Simon didn't. Um, any thoughts? Any thoughts you guys want to add to any of that? Okay, let's well, go to verse. Yeah, go ahead. It go, goes along with First John chapter one. Uh, you know, when a when a Christian sins, they they need to confess that, and then start practicing righteousness again. Yep. Okay, uh, guys, we've got about six or seven minutes here. I'm not sure that we can do justice to the Ethiopian eunuch. If you have something else you want to talk about in the first half of chapter eight, say so now. And then if you don't, we'll go ahead and get started uh, with what happens starting in verse 25 and thereafter. Maybe go back to uh, verse three in particular and see uh, can, maybe you can clarify for me here. Um, was he causing problems with the church or with the people in verse three? 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so I think your point is that the church is the people. Right. Right. Um, he's going in and he is he is causing problems for the people when he's arresting them and taking them to prison. And what it says is he laid waste the church. It's not a building that he laid waste, and it's not even an institution like a, some kind of organization. It's the people. Right. And, and, and also, I think it's helpful to recognize that the church is the church, even when they're not assembled. Yeah. Because he's going into people's houses um, uh, and, uh, and, and dragging them out. Uh, they, they, they are the church. They are the, the, the called out from God. Yeah, the, and you remember the church, the word translated church means basically an assembly, <clears throat> but, and while each, and while Christians in each location do physically assemble, First Peter 2, to borrow the language you use, First Peter 2 <clears throat> talks about being called out of darkness into his marvelous light. So God's people are spiritually assembled in the light of God, and thus they are an assembly. Yeah, that's cool. Joe, I hadn't seen that point made from Acts 8. I'd always heard it from Acts 19, like Jeff was talking about. So that's cool. I hadn't seen that. Yeah, right. so uh, go ahead, Jeff. I wasn't actually talking about Acts 19. What are you talking about in Acts 19? The, the, the word sorry. assembly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a good illustration of the meaning of the word church as an assembly. Sure. Sure. And, and what you're alluding to is the fact that the, there the word is used of, of a mob that comes together physically in a, in a theater, and it's called an assembly. When, when Luke says the assembly was in confusion, and then later on in the passage, there's a reference to a legal assembly. So those, those passages uh, illustrate the fact that the basic meaning of the word church is assembly. To Joe's point, you can have a people who are spiritually assembled, even when they're not physically assembled, and thus are the church. All right. Uh, well, let's see here. Let's set up the, the eunuch here. Um, so verse 25 says, They therefore, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, that'd be Peter and John, returned to Jerusalem and preached the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise, go toward the south unto the way that goes down from Jerusalem unto Gaza. The same is desert or deserted. It's a wilderness area. So there's a road that would go from Jericho over to the coast where Gaza was near the coast. Philip's supposed to go down there, and he's going to encounter somebody there. Um, what do you guys want to do here? You want to get started in verse 27, or do you have some comments up to that point? So maybe just recognizing that it's an angel of the Lord that is directing uh, Philip here. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it seems pretty significant. Um, uh, we've had... Um, wasn't it earlier in, um, oh no, uh, his appearance was like an angel, wasn't it? Um, in uh, 615, mm -hmm. I, I started to confuse those two passages. But, there, if sorry. Go, but if we go back to Acts chapter five, um, nope, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm also thinking, Ron, I'm thinking of uh, Acts chapter 12, where Peter is in right. jail. Oh no, in Acts chapter five, verse 19, an angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them out when yeah. the apostles yeah. had been arrested. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, let's let's get the story with the, the eunuch set up here. Uh, an angel of the Lord, verse 26, spoke to Philip, saying, Arise, go toward the south under the way that goes down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, the same as desert. And he rose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Kandake, or Candace, if you want to say it that way, queen of the Ethiopians, 
who was over all her treasure, uh, who had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. All right, we've got several things to talk about here. What's a eunuch? Where's Ethiopia? Uh, what's this guy doing in Jerusalem? And so on. Well, I'll let you take the first one. All right. <laughs> I think that's uh, the first one going from the last to the first. So he was in <laughs> Jerusalem to worship. Okay. All right. So a eunuch is a castrated man. Um, sometimes it's true. The word eunuch is used um, in, in, well, let's just put it this way. In ancient times, it was not unusual for, especially Eastern rulers, but it was not unusual for rulers to uh, have eunuchs in their service, in their courts. They would have men who were castrated, uh, and they could count on those men. And there's some rationale given for that, actually, in, a, in an ancient Greek historian named Xenophon, as he talks about Cyrus, king of the Persians, and why Cyrus preferred to have eunuchs in, in his court. Um, as a result of that fact, there's sometimes when the term eunuch is used, and it may just be a person who's a court official and not literally castrated, I suspect this guy was literally castrated. He is a eunuch, and he is a court official. He's treasurer over the he's over the treasury of this of this uh, woman who who has great authority in Ethiopia. So, all right, so I took care of that. Where is Ethiopia, and what's he doing in Jerusalem? So, Ethiopia, we're looking at Africa, northern Africa, um, and uh, he's he's come traveled a great distance then uh, to Jerusalem to worship God, which is quite incredible because there was something really significant about uh, eunuchs in what they were not permitted to do in uh, in coming into uh, the, the presence of God. Yeah. Um, so uh, eunuchs were in were, the temple, right? Right. Deuteronomy exactly. 23 specifically says this, Deuteronomy 23 in the first verse, no one who is emasculated or has his male organ cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. So he's going to come all the way to Jerusalem to worship because that's where the Jews had the house of God, the temple. So apparently he is somebody who's impressed with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he's going to travel this great distance. And when he gets there, he cannot enter the assembly. It's kind of like if you bought tickets to the Super Bowl and traveled clear across the country, go to the Super Bowl, and you were going to have to sit in the parking lot. Yeah, and 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 we, we see people that do that sort of thing. But imagine traveling all of that distance um, with his position and uh, responsibilities. It, it really is a great sacrifice on on his part. We haven't said what the distance is, and it's a little unclear exactly where the capital uh, in Ethiopia would have been at this point, but it's somewhere between seven and 900 miles that he's going to travel in a chariot yeah. in Africa <laughs> yeah. Yeah. to get to Jerusalem. Just, just a re re remarkable amount of faith that this man is is showing here. And he's um, been to Jerusalem. Now he's turned around. He's on his way home. And right. what's he doing? He's reading. Yep. Uh, I don't think we got quite that far. Reading a scroll of Isaiah 53. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, verse 28, reading Isaiah. All right. So we're going to have to leave it there and pick up with what Philip says to him. We'll pick it up next week. Thank you for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's Bible quest. If you'd like to learn more about God's Word, click the Free Bible Studies button at the end of this video, or go to BibleCourses.online. Let me repeat that. It's BibleCourses.online. There you'll be able to choose from a variety of Bible courses.
that are available on demand at no cost. Thank you.